everyone, and welcome back to the conversation. Joining Jonathan and me today is Dr. Neil Shenby. Dr. Shenby is a graduate of Princeton University, and he became a believer while pursuing his doctorate at UC Berkeley. He and his wife are members at Summit Church in North Carolina, and Dr. Shenby spends most of his time these days homeschooling their four children. We asked him to join us here today because he has written and spoken about the history, dynamics, and influence of critical theory and how to think about it from a Christian worldview. So, Dr. Shenby, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure, Kathleen. Dr. Shenby, if you don't mind, for our listeners who haven't visited your website or are not yet familiar with your work, could you just give us a little bit of your, your own your, your coming to faith story, your background, your family, uh, so they can get to know you a little bit? Sure. I grew up in a really great, loving, but non-Christian home, uh, great parents, but really did not know anything about Christianity uh, all the way through high school and going to college. I was kind of a generic theist. I believed in God, but I really was not a Christian except in some kind of vague, maybe cultural sense. Uh, I never went to church, didn't really ever read the Bible. But uh, I met my future wife, Christina, in college and really liked her. We began dating, which is a kind of bad idea because she was was a believer. (laughs) And that's always kind of unwise. But it turned out well for us. Uh, God used it for good. We We went to Berkeley, a graduate school at Berkeley together. And I began going to church with her because I said, oh, I'll show her that I'm willing to kind of meet her halfway on this whole Jesus thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard the gospel preached. I heard people that were clearly intelligent people. My professors, my my graduate uh, school professor in cosmology was singing in the choir. And I had to take Christianity seriously. And it really shattered my pride. Until then, I'd been very proud of my intellect, my uh, mm-hmm. my accomplishments in my, my morality, my belief in God, these were all things that I thought really made me a, a very awesome person. And hearing the gospel that actually we're all sinners, that we actually need forgiveness. I kind wow. of believe that in some sense, I was a big fan of C.S. Lewis. So I heard that idea, but it really came home to me that, oh, this is true. Then it's not okay just to kind of generically believe in God. I actually have to follow Jesus. And I need to accept forgiveness. I'm not that awesome, actually. And then, of course, I grew a lot from there. Yeah. That's such a work of God. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Well, thanks. Um, So we'll just dive right in uh, to the main topic here. You know, in evangelicalism, we don't often hear the phrase critical theory or critical race theory sometimes, but a lot more often we'll hear social justice. And so can you talk about what these phrases mean and what's their relationship and what's the roots of critical theory? The term critical theory uh, is one that's used in academia, but people are trying to get a handle on this ideology they see at work in the culture, in, in colleges and universities, and even in the church. It goes by different names. People will call it cultural Marxism, neo-Marxism, identity politics, applied postmodernism. There are a lot of names for it, but it really definitely describes this coherent ideology that you see in a lot of major national activist organizations. Uh, As to where it came from, people generally, it's complicated. People agree that critical theory, as it's known, originated in uh, something called the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1930s with people like Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse. But then contemporary critical theory, this movement we see in, say, in the universities and in culture, it has a lot of different sources. So you have to bring in people like uh, anarchist Antonio Gramsci, postmodernists like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, uh, anti-colonialists like Franz Fanon and Paulo Freire, and then 
recently uh, law scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw who coined the term intersectionality. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of different strands there. It's like trying to define like what is feminism? Where does it come from? Yeah. Man, are you talking about first, second, third, or fourth wave feminism? You're talking about American feminism or English feminism or, or postmodernism, right? There's there's a broad field, so it's a hard to encapsulate. I like to focus on what the main beliefs are of this belief system, and I don't really care about what label you use to describe it. And as for social justice, well, that also is a complicated concept. So. <laughs> The term originates with a Catholic priest in the 19th century, and he used the phrase to uh, describe Catholic social teaching. So how do you produce human flourishing according to Catholic teaching? And there's a whole section still in the Catholic catechism on social justice by that by that name. Mm. But the terms evolved quite a bit. So when people talk about social justice on TV, they're not talking about Catholic social flourishing. <laughs> they're talking about something else. And what's important to recognize is that critical theorists, people that are involved with this movement, uh, I would say that the, the, the broader social justice movement in our culture today defines social justice in the following way. Here's a quote from Mary McClintock's essay, How to Interrupt Oppressive Behavior. So mm-hmm. she defines social justice as the elimination of all forms of social oppression Okay, and listen to what she says. Social injustice takes many forms. It can be injustice based on a person's gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, physical or mental ability, or economic class. So those are all forms of oppression that social justice is trying to eliminate. And that is the definition that is across the board applied by critical theor- contemporary critical theorists. If you can speak real, real quickly to how have you seen the term social justice in, used in a similar way or a different way uh, within what you've seen within evangelicalism? Well, that's the problem. So when people will use the term social justice in evangelicalism and even within the critical theory literature without defining it. So right, it's really right. hard to know what they mean by that term. For example, the ESV study Bible has a, the heading for, I think, Leviticus 21 is, the heading is, they give it our laws on social justice. <laughs> and these are laws about caring for the widows and orphans and also instituting capital punishment for, you know, witches and things. So right. yeah. they're, they're viewing that social justice to them, to the ESV translators, clearly meant applying the laws of God to society, right? right. Horizontal. Leviticus. Yeah. So, that's what they mean by social justice. So you clearly can use that term and not mean anything unbiblical. You're, you're referring to the Bible as the definition of social justice. However, people can also use that term nebulously. They just define it as this good thing that everybody wants social justice, don't we? On the other hand, you have people that actually are defining that term as the elimination of all forms of social oppression, where it's defined according to critical theory. And I should go into what critical theory actually says about oppression, because it's a huge divergence from the Christian worldview. Mm, yeah. Could you speak to that real quickly? I don't want to jump ahead, but I'd love yeah, to hear no, this, That's really important. So uh, one thing to say at the outset is you have to define your terms. So for example, terms like oppression, terms like racism, white supremacy, whiteness, uh, uh, decolonizing your theology, all of those terms have to be unpacked because critical theorists use them in a technical way. Mm. Let me explain critical theory in a nutshell. Again, it's nebulous, it's diverse, but I'm identifying sort of three major tenets of critical theory. So number one, 
critical theory divides the world into oppressed groups and their oppressors. And it sees things in a collectivist lens, through a collectivist lens. So it doesn't focus on individuals. It focuses on group, social groups. And it divides them along lines of race, class, gender, uh, able, ability, physical ability, sexual orientation, gender identity, and all these different axes. And every axis comes with a dominant group, an oppressor group, and a subordinate group, the oppressed group. So that is what oppression means. It does not mean violence, physical abuse, you know, injustice. Slavery, slavery, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, right. The dictionary would define things like slavery, theft, cruelty, you know, active, ongoing hurt, harm as right. oppression. Critical theory defines oppression in terms of what's called hegemonic power. So yeah. hegemonic power is the ability of the dominant group to impose their values on culture. So whenever you have a dominant group like men or whites or heterosexuals or cisgendered people, that group is a dominant group and therefore an oppressor group. And they've imposed their narrative, their ideology on culture so that we grow up in a culture that takes for granted that certain things are quote unquote normal and other things are abnormal. So yeah, things like so they would say that men are considered the norm and male behaviors, male actions, male preferences, that's normal. And according to critical theorists, the feminine is abnormal. It's a, it's a, it's something missing from the masculine. Now, as mm -hmm. Christians, we wouldn't see that at all, but they would define right. men and women in this, in this asymmetric power relationship between the patriarchy, which enforces these male norms, and then these women who are oppressed by the patriarchy. Right. And so in this, in this view, it doesn't, you know, racism would not necessarily be tied to a specific act or even a belief or anything like that. It's, it's just kind of the state of things. Um, it's a, it's a very systemic view. Absolutely. Yeah. They would definitely say that if you're only defining racism as either malice or hatred or even just individual actions that are discriminatory, right. then your, your view of racism is deficient. It, it really is more about systems and structures and less about interpersonal relationships. So there's a whole book called Racism Without Racist by Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who's a sociologist at Duke, who argues that, again, racism is more about this ideology and the structure that society has imposed on its citizens and less about anyone being personally having animus towards other racial groups. That's not what racism is primarily. How I've approached uh, critical theory is because I began hearing a lot in my own circles about social justice and mercy. Now, as you said already, you know things that we all agree upon, but then the the logic that they then take out of that or the, the direction they go with that was, you know, to me, really kind of eyebrow raising. I kept thinking to myself, what's going on here? And that's where I began to do more reading and research. And you know a lot more and I've done a lot more reading than most evangelicals. So what is it about this? theory, critical theory, uh, and its relationship to social justice that has become, I would say, uh, so popular, more popular within evangelicalism, and I think without a lot of people even realizing it. Well, there are a lot of reasons why it's popular. It's popular in part because it's popular in culture. So the church is part, right. we're in the world, we're part of the culture, and we ideally were always reflecting on trends in the culture and asking ourselves, is this a good trend? Is it a bad trend? Is it biblical? Is it not? What parts of it do we have to critique? What can we accept? In the absence of that kind of discernment, it's very easy for us to just go along with trends. And so clearly mm. atheists are noting what they call the Great Awakening. Mm. The Great right. Awakening took place you know, in 2014, 2016, when 
social justice and critical theory became this just dominant cultural force. And even again, these are not Christian. These are atheists who are writing about social justice and these phenomena. They see it in the culture and it's they, they even interestingly are beginning to notice it in the evangelical church. And these guys, these are so a guy named James Lindsay that I did an interview with a few months ago. But he is very prominent, uh, a very prominent critic of critical theory. After talking to me and another friend of mine, Esther, who with Christians, he began getting interested in the ways in which critical theory is influencing the evangelical church like any other institution. And I think what's attractive, what makes it attractive, it purports to take sexism and racism and injustice very seriously. Mm. And I think people yeah. that are frustrated with the church and are frustrated with just racism and sexism, or even I say frustrated, they hate it. Good. I'm glad they hate yeah. It. Yeah, amen. these sins. Yeah, amen. But they look around and say, well, who cares about these issues? And oh, critical theory cares about these issues. So we should get on board with them because they're so we can form an alliance here. But we have to be very careful in terms of co-belligerency. And as Christians, we can say uh, we can advance certain causes that are just and accept other people uh, on board in a limited way as our allies because we care about these things. For example, you know, abortion. Conservative right. Christians will be co-belligerents with, say, secular atheists who are pro-life or or Muslims or Jews. Or, or feminists or whoever. Or, or yeah. feminists are pro-life. Sure, sure. We have pornography, another one, pornography. A lot of feminists are very anti-porn. We should be the first to say, well, that's that's right. You know, you may have different reasons for opposing pornography than Christians do, but we can join arms in some sense and say, well, we agree with you. In fact, your, um, in, in, at least possibly, their dislike of pornography could be the uh, the sense of their conscience. It's, you know, God informing through common grace their conception of what are right and wrong. There are other objections to pornography that are not moral ones. So we, we don't necessarily want to say we're on the same page here. But the attraction is, look, these people are speaking out about racism and sexism and, and injustice. They want to care for the poor. So yeah. we should be on board with them. What they don't often realize is that these people are operating, they have a totally different worldview. And that worldview, unfortunately, is often being absorbed along with these other causes. So yeah. you'll hear these terms and these ideas entering the church through these authors who are operating from an entirely different paradigm. Another another tenet, so I talked about how there's oppressed groups and oppressor groups. Another tenet of critical theory is that the oppressed group has special access to truth, while the oppressor right. group is blind to truth. So that's their epistemology. So it's called standpoint epistemology. And the idea is that your access to truth, your understanding of reality, is conditioned on your social location. And oppressor groups are blind because they have incentive to ignore the reality of oppression, whereas oppressed groups have this, thing, again, they're woke, that's the slang, they are mm -hmm. woke to these realities, and therefore, they have this special knowledge. And because of that, the oppressor, if you're part of an oppressor group, you need to just defer to the truth that is being brought to you by oppressed groups. That is a very dangerous thing to say because here's an example. This is actually from a, an evangelical author, a conservative evangelical author. I won't name names. This is a tweet he wrote. He wrote this. The Bible is written from the lens of the marginalized. If you come from a group or community that is historically not marginalized, you need these voices and perspectives or else your understanding of the word, 
the gospel and the Christian life will be thin and weak. Mm. Now think what he just said. If yeah. you're an oppressor group, if you're part of that group, you can't fully understand the Bible, the gospel, or the Christian life. It's going to be thin and weak. Right. I, you said that, you say, wait a minute. So who are we talking about here? You think, like, is it Calvin's grasp of the gospel, Luther's, Zwingli's, Spurgeon's? Which of them had thin and weak grasps of the Bible and the gospel? I, that is borrowed wholesale from critical theory, that thinking. And then if you, but if you accept that idea, you start saying, well, I can't criticize these other groups that have sort of, maybe their theology is not quite, to me, it sounds not quite right. But who am I to say I'm a white male? I mean, I'm not, I'm half Indian, but a white male. <laughs> right. <I would> say. <laughs> but you, this is, so this is why once that, that's the epistemological foot in the door. Once someone accepts that, well, I can't really critique ideas because I'm part of an oppressor group, well, then you open the door to all kinds of wrong ideas because you can't step back and say, wait right. a minute, I understand that I have my perspective and maybe I am, I am biased. I am blinded by my own position, We all, but we all are. We're all sinners because Christians don't yeah. think that power blinds. We think that sin blinds and mm -hmm. we're all sinners and we all need to come to the table as brothers and sisters and come to the scripture with the Bible open and say, what does this say? What does it say? What has God said? We can't pronounce that one group, whether it's the powerful or the powerless, has a monopoly on the Bible. That's very dangerous. Right, right. And it really denies uh, basic beliefs we have that the Bible is accessible to everyone. You know, the perspicuity of Scripture is, it's clear, it's understandable. Anybody can learn from the Bible. And and that view also does kind of romanticize things like poverty. And I, I've seen that in play um, in various groups that I've been a part of. But yeah, I think you're right that there are people who really care about real injustice and things like racism and sexism. And they want uh, this to be addressed. Christians want this to be addressed. And so they're looking for someone who is responding to this. And this seems like the answer. And, and so, so I think it'd be good to go into like looking at the overarching storyline or worldview of critical theory what can we affirm from that? But then also, how is that different from the biblical storyline of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or restoration? Yeah, so I sketch critical theory as a worldview that runs oppression to activism to equity. So, you know, Bible, like you said, runs from creation to fall to redemption to restoration. Well, critical theory omits the idea of creation. And our identity is not primarily between us and God. Like, you know, God gives us identity as his creation, if, he, if we're Christians, as his adopted children. But rather, in critical theory, your identity is formed by your social location. So your interaction with other groups and power structures and power dynamics, that tells you who you are. You know, I am part of this oppressed group. I'm part of this oppressor group. And then your goal in life, your, your moral duty, your Pretty much your, your primary moral duty is to liberate oppressed groups. So either if you are an oppressor, then you need to divest yourself of your privilege and stand in allyship with oppressed groups. Or if you're an oppressed person, you have to interrupt oppression. You have to call out oppression and refuse to stand for it. And then the goal is a state of equity where we all now what that exactly means, it's unclear, but it's it's. Sort well it depends who you ask. They would say it's just a state in which there's no oppression anymore. That's the goal. And of mm -hmm. course, they would say it probably is an impossible goal. They have ways to think we can achieve it, but that's at least we're moving towards. We can say about that. We can say, look, oppression is a reality, at least as if you define it biblically. 
you know, when you, people are actually being treated cruelly and, and unjustly, that's a real thing. Systems can be unjust, right? A abortion is a system. It's unjust. The laws are unjust. We should work against those unjust laws. So that's not in conflict with the Christian view of reality. Talk about the fact that racism does really exist today uh, and, and racial disparities. So, you know, whites, the median white household has 13 times the wealth of the median black household. Now, there are actually there are multiple reasons for that. But one of the reasons surely is the legacy of systemic racism in the U.S. We had laws for 300 years that marginalized right. and brutalized black people. And is it any wonder that they're still feeling the effects of those laws? No. So yeah. Christians should be sympathetic and say, yeah, what can we do to bless our brothers and sisters in Christ? How can we undo this legacy? So yeah. those are all things that we can affirm and say, yes, we care about those things as Christians. But in terms of the deeper conflicts, um, one, there are like, three main ones. So one is that we have to emphasize the individuality of the Bible when it comes to moral responsibility and sin mm. and guilt. Now, is there a sense in which we were part of groups that can sin collectively, you know, in some sense, but when you look at the Bible, the line is drawn between mother and daughter, father and son, brother and sister, whether you're in God's kingdom or outside mm. of it, and whether you are obedient to God and trusting in Jesus' redemption or not. And so, in the Bible, and God talks about righteous individuals being saved from wicked cultures. Think about Lot. Think about the godly remnant in Israel. So we cannot simply tar an entire demographic group with the same brush when it comes to God's evaluation of their life. That's very dangerous. And more than that, that also will undermine the idea that oppressed people are sinners who need the gospel. Like You don't get a pass if, oh, I'm an oppressed person. Well, did you sin? Right. Well, yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, then then you're a sinner. So we can sympathize greatly with people that are actually experiencing real oppression and yet say, you, like I, am a sinner and need a, a, a savior. So that's number one. We have to, that whole division between oppressor and oppressed needs to give way to the biblical emphasis on rescued versus not rescued sinner versus saint you know some of those who are again not not in the sense of behaving well but are you redeemed in christ versus are you outside of christ um that has to be number one the way that we view identity the way that we view morality ethics the way that we view re re reality itself is that you are either um trusting in jesus to save you and in christ or you are rejecting jesus to save you and you are outside of christ that's and that's why that creates the unity the church should display, right? That's why we gather together as people of all classes, races, genders, yeah. and and can affirm, hey, we're all sinners who've been saved by this wonderful Savior. Now that's the same basis for our unity. So that's like number one. You got to immediately just say that presser oppressed lens is not the way to see reality. Number two, I'd say epistemology. How do you know the truth? And the answer is we know the truth primarily through scripture and through reason, right? And there and there's not you don't have an advantage in terms of understanding God's truth just because you happen to be part of a particular demographic group. Now, obviously, you know, you know, it's true. Like, okay, if you speak Greek as a first language, ancient Greek as a first language, okay, that you have you have an advantage there. But simply the fact that say you have Greek ancestry, or you know, or you you're a you're a woman. Yeah, yeah, right. That's not enough to say. Well, now I understand the Bible, and people who don't have that ancestry don't understand the Bible. That that's not the way. Scripture, you said the perspicuity of scriptures on the uh, issue here. 
do we primarily rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, or do we need the Holy Spirit plus some demographic marker? And again, it's not about your own personal experiences. It's enough to say, well, I'm part of X oppressed group, and therefore I have this infallible insight into what the Bible really means. That's again, that's that's right. a non-starter because we can't even if that's you accept that idea, you can't even come to the table with another Christian and say, well, let's 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 consult the scriptures. They'll say, well, you, no, you can't because yeah. you're privileged. It shuts down any dialogue. It shuts down any critique, and it takes this one particular class along whatever axis you're looking at at that particular moment and elevates it above everyone else, which is really the thing that they're critiquing about the dominant group now. So it's. It's, yeah, it's self-refuting. It's really funny that even as a secular philosophy, it has some deep problems. We don't even go into that. Yeah. But yeah, I agree right. that they're doing exactly what they're saying we shouldn't do, which is they're, they're saying their ideology is correct, and they're silencing all other ideologies and imposing their ideology on culture. So right. yeah, it's inconsistent. But yeah, that, but in terms of Christians, we need to just say, look, I'm not going to say I'm perfect and infallible. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not infallible. I'm saying the Bible is. Yeah. And we need to come together and with an open Bible and discuss these issues. We can't just say, we can't write people's opinions off because they are quote unquote privileged. And we can't enshrine their opinions as truth because they are oppressed. And the other thing hand in hand with that is the exaltation of lived experience. So in mm. critical theory, the reason that the oppressed person has this access to truth is their lived experience. And they would say that just be by being an oppressed group, they necessarily have this experience of oppression that then gives them this insight. And that's why you'll see so many people who embrace critical theory also embracing unbiblical views of sexuality and gender and all kinds of and even religion, because there's they'll say, well, who am I to challenge the lived experience of, say, uh, a Muslim or a Hindu or an LGBTQ person, because that's their lived experience. And if I, as right. a privileged person, were to claim that that's wrong, well, I'd be invalidating their personhood. I'd be demeaning them as a person. And of course, that's yeah. just not true. <laughs> Either certain statements are objectively true or false, and we can we can know them independent of our personal you know experiences, or completely just thrown into this chaos of everyone's own opinion is true and it's all subjective and they have their limited experiences, their reality, their truth, and I have mine. Well, the Bible says, no, there's one truth. And uh, right, so we can't, we can't adopt that view of, of truth. From my perspective, and, and really partly why I ended up finding you and your work that you're doing is um, you know, people might be saying, well, what does this have to do with marriage and family and ministry, discipleship of the, your, your kids? Uh, you know, because that's what CrossF is all about. And I think, well, I, I think some people know it, some people maybe aren't aware of it, is that I do think these ideas, even if folks have never heard the name critical theory or are, are you know, feel like they're really insulated from those ideas, they aren't. They're, they're bleeding into everything, including into theology and into churches and denominations. And oftentimes, I mean, I, I would say that it is a, a wolf in sheep's clothing because they come using the language of the gospel, talking about mercy and talking about the poor and talking about justice. Um, but if you look at the fruit of, of what, you know, they're actually wanting to go toward, it, I, I, I feel pretty strongly that it, it leads to the destruction of, of believers, of the church in the long run. I mean, I think it's a very destructive ideology. And so for me, you know, my, my concern, my passion is, is, and with Cross Life, is I want there to be 
a faithful, vibrant church in the United States in 20 years, in 30 years, in, in 100 years. And I see this currently today as, as a real serious you know, movement that's happening within the church that, that, that pulls the rug out from underneath everything that we believe in, in the end. Another thing that concerns me a lot with Christians who, whether or not they use the term critical theory, and a lot of them don't, even though that's what they speak from, what I find is a spirit, I would say a spirit of pride and of self-righteousness. To me, there's a surprising amount of finger-pointing at other people about how they're wrong or they're bad or they're, you know, for whatever whatever is their, their, their cause, whether it's race or gender or uh, sexuality. And it seems to be something that, that I would say breeds pride. And um, I'd love to hear you speak to that just a little bit and just to what else I said. So part of the, yeah, I, well, in terms of the culture and keeping and keeping our kids rooted in a, in a Christian worldview, I completely agree. Um, I think the good news is that the response to the stuff that I've been writing uh, has been very positive. So I also, like you, got interested in this this ideology because I saw people that I knew personally and public figures begin to adopt it and then go from that initial acceptance of critical theory, which at the time I didn't know what it was, but I would see them just go off the rails theologically yeah. in radical ways. Right. And I couldn't figure out why. So I began looking into critical theory and realized, oh, this is why, because they've adopted essentially what's a new religion. It's it's a mm. new way of looking at reality. And you, yeah. can't, you can't look at reality in two different ways. You can either the, through the lens of Christianity or through some other lens. It's, it's not Christianity. And we're seeing here that these worldviews conflict on basic levels. Like what is morality? What is truth? Right. How do you know the truth? So you can't combine the two. That's why I was concerned as well. And I do think it's a real threat and I, I see it as a growing threat. That said, I've been encouraged that once people understand critical theory and can name it and can under, and can name its basic mm -hmm. premises and can point to where it's unbiblical, that's very important. Then they resist it, or they say. Even I had people, numerous people, email me and say I had no idea what I that what I was believing was part of a really wrong, false view of reality. And now I realize that, and now I reject it. If they're genuine believers, oftentimes they're just a, a true. This is not pejorative. There's a level of ignorance, hmm. not in a pejorative yeah. way. They just they don't yeah. know what they're involved in. And once hmm. they do, they're like, oh, I don't want to be a part of that. So that's the good right. news. And I think in terms of teaching our kids. Like my son loves talking about critical theory because I'm talking about it all the time. He can outline the basic premises of critical theory and immediately say why they're false. So for example, if people understand that critical theory views power as inherently oppressive, like the hegemonic power isn't it's it's oppression, that's what it is. Yeah. And when you immediately say, Well, wait a minute, the Bible is just one long hegemonic discourse from start to finish. It's just one long book about how God has all the power and all the authority. And a certain Amen. standard that we're all called to live up to. And it justifies his power over us. And so it's completely mm -hmm. benevolent and good and unquestionable. That's not going to work. You can't combine this view that hegemonic power is oppressive with the idea that God has complete power and hegemony over us. Right. So immediately you're like, wait a minute. This is right off the bat a non-starter. So there may yeah. be things like that where if people just realize those, those tensions – they pretty quickly say, wait a minute, I got to start really re-examining what I think about all these different issues. You know, for my wife and I, one of the challenges for me, so I'm a white male, I'm, I'm persona non grata in, in the <laughs> schema. Um, 
You know, but something you're, a that, si- you're a cishet white male too, right? C- oh, cis- gee, yes. yeah. And a Christian <laughs> one at that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, Christian I mean, privilege, yeah. Um, and this is actually, this is where something that for me I feel quite passionate about is that with regard to these kinds of approaches of looking at people is they completely obliterate the individual distinctions of the person's life. And so like my wife and I, yes, we acknowledge that that we, by dint of being, you know, growing up in America, which is a, something else I'll get to in just a second. I grew up in America and, and we have white parents, like we had certain social systemic advantages. But at the same time, if you heard our own personal stories, we both underwent incredible trials and incredible difficulties. And I'm not just saying that in, in a cliched way. You know, yeah. there were things that we both went through that were excruciatingly challenging in our childhoods. And, and so that just gets obliterated where I'm automatically you know, a part of this privileged class and I have, I have all this power and all of these things when, when you, and, you know, I think that's one of the, the things that, it, as you spoke to, it obliterates the individual person and it just treats us all as, as almost, you know, just class-based automatons. And I think, of course, not only is it clearly unbiblical, it's, it's, it's incredibly unhealthy because I think about my own kids and, you know, my kids never need to feel shame about their skin color. You know, I have beautiful, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids. And if I were to follow the logic of this system, then my kids would, would inherit this guilt and this shame by sheer dint of their skin color. And, and to me, I think that is so debilitating, regardless of it being absolutely horrendously wrong and really the definition of racism. You know, I don't want my kids raised in that kind of, that kind of thought, you know, process of, yes, feel guilty for your sin. Feel guilty for your shame, grieve for the ways that racism has certainly impacted our, our world and our own country, but you know, never fall into the trap of thinking that any human category makes you more or less guilty before God than any other does. Yeah, and this is the, there are a lot of things there, because uh, so critical theorists also tend to be very, uh, it's hard to even say, equivocal in how they use language. So you on one hand, you'll find people explicitly saying, like Peggy McIntosh, who, who popularized the phrase white privilege, she explicitly says that she was guilty as a white person. She was morally guilty yeah. as a white person. Yeah. And, and Richard Delgado in Critical Race Theory will say that, like, you know, no white person living in, a, in our society is, is really that is really quite innocent because we all they, you all participate in these systems of privilege. Uh, but but. So then they'll say that, but then they'll turn around and say, well, we're not really saying that you're actually morally guilty per se. We just said that, but <laughs> right. we're just, but they, they're saying is, well, but what you need to do is you need to show, you need to divest yourself of your privilege. So right. they use this phrase moral language, even explicit moral language, but yeah. then we'll then say, but look, it'll all be forgiven if you just get on board with our agenda. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think you say, well, why is this attractive to people? Why do people want to deal with all this? You know, you're so terrible because of your, your group, your gender, your toxic masculinity. And I think the answer is that it, it does introduce a, a kind of works righteousness into our conception yeah. of ourselves. So the idea is that if you are a white male, but you're willing to accept that you are in a position of privilege and that you have, you are an oppressor, that then you can atone for that. And as long as you don't ever say, no, I reject the system. Uh, and that, cause that, if you say, well, I don't believe in this stuff, then that's white fragility. So Robin D'Angelo has a right. book called white fragility. Yeah. And, but can, can again, James, and if you don't kind of, 
Yeah, no, it's very much that that. So again, James Lindsay is an atheist, and he calls these terms like white privilege, white fragility. He calls them Trojan horse terms because they smuggle in uh, these moral this moral language into the discourse that can then be used as a uh, a mechanism for enforcing for putting moral pressure on you. So if you say so, for right. example, they would say things like all white people participate in white supremacy. And you're like, oh my gosh, you calling me a neo-Nazi? And they're like, no, 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 we're not saying that because white supremacy just means that society is, you know, dominated by the values of whites because they're majorities. And you're like, oh, so you are a white supremacist. You're like, wait a minute, no, no, am I? <laughs> so, so then once they have you saying, oh, I am complicit in white supremacy, and they've redefined that term, but then they can use that to apply pressure to then, you have to then also begin to adopt their other views of how we then dismantle these structures and systems. So it does become, again, this is James Lindsay's term, a Trojan horse to smuggle in these moral views under this language that's very confusing. Hmm. So, and it is something to be aware of. Now, why is it, I think other thing is that Christians are like, well, would it really hurt white people to be more sensitive of racism? And I say, like, no, it really wouldn't, frankly. Yeah. Like, there are plenty of white no, people out right. there that are just callous, that need to, to be shaken by the shoulders and say, racism That's is funny. there. It's hurtful. I had, a, I had an interview with a woman named Nerva Reddy, who's uh, black. She's of Haitian origin. She grew up in Chicago. And she was describing how in middle school, these girls were behind her, like, laughing at her skin color and calling her ugly. And she, mm-hmm. she didn't, she was too little to realize. And then she realized that they were making fun of her. She got really ashamed. And I started like, te- I'm tearing up now. I'm like, that's so messed up that that exists in our society. And so, yes, would it be bad if whites were sensitive, more, were more sensitive to that kind of sin? Probably not. But you have to understand yeah. it's not all that's being asked. There is a whole worldview underneath that. And mm-hmm. that is destructive. And we can't just for the sake of, Yes, I wish that whites and all people were more sensitive to social sin and injustice, but yeah. we cannot simply say, well, the ends justify the means. We're going to adopt this entirely unbiblical way of viewing reality so that we can achieve more justice. I, I, that's just not going to work. And it's, it's not working. We're seeing the really yeah. pernicious effects of this ideology. Which is why I think that you know, as Christians, we need to have a positive, proactive way of addressing these things. So, you know, how can Christians talk about the realities of racism and other forms of injustice um, from a biblical worldview, not from a critical theory worldview? And I think that's what we we need Mm. to be able to provide people and to provide our children so that as we're talking about this, we're not just ignoring these grievous realities. Yes, it grieves me so much to hear stories like that and to just to know about the history and the present realities um, of, of, of systemic racial issues in our country and, you know, other places too. So how do we create a approach to this that is distinctly Christian, that is, that is recognizing the biblical story that we are created in the image of God and we are fallen and we're sinful. And so as believers, we are redeemed by Christ. The book that I have read that I like the best about race and Christianity is uh, Professor George Yancey's Beyond a Racial Gridlock. Uh, mm-hmm. He approaches this issue um, from a very root, uh, grounded biblical perspective, uh, mm-hmm. very gospel-centered, and he explicitly, so he even adopts terms like white privilege, but he's very careful to define them and then to, to say what he's not saying. But then he also 
you know, explicitly critiques basically a critical theory based model of of race relations. So he's he he's a solid believer. He in his whole approach, his whole approach basically in the book is we need to have a genuine dialogue where we actually get together to talk about these issues from the perspective of that we're all sinners, we're all we all fall short of God's glory, we all have blind spots, and we all need to come to the table together as brothers to sit to talk about how the church can be can heal racial wounds, can build trust can fix things. I mean, simple practical examples, like someone uh, asked me recently, well, our church is having like a, a round table on diversity. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I was like, well, it's a good thing because it, it could be, I mean, like most places in the U.S., the church is very fractured along lines of race and, and ethnicity right. and all kinds of things. Uh, but just make sure, all you should make sure is that the the discussion is rooted in the Bible and that it's explicitly not rooted in critical theory. But you can talk about things like this. Talk about things like, look, if your church is—so her church was majority white, but had a lot of Hispanics because she lived in a in Texas. And there were a lot of Hispanics in her neighborhood. But I was saying, look, you could ask the people in the church, like, well, uh, are are we doing things that make people uncomfortable? Like, are the songs we're singing just that not the songs they're used to? Are we greeting everyone equally? There's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. I don't mean about like immigration. I'm just talking about, oh, you don't speak English. Oh, we, we don't like you. That kind of sentiment. Right. It's out there in society. Yeah. When people come to your church, if they're Hispanic, let's say they're Spanish speakers only, for example, they come to your church. Do they feel loved? You don't be like, oh, suck it up. What's wrong? We love you. Obviously, we're Christians. Have some sensitivity and say, hey, they probably experienced really hard things. How can we go out of our way to show them that we love them? We value them as Christians. And so there are all these ways in which Christians approaching the topic with uh, charity and assuming the best of intentions can make real progress in how we address these issues. We, and we should also, we need to be very clear that we're going to lay down our own personal preferences for the sake of the body. We can't be like, well, this is the way I've always done it. This is the music I like. Well, I don't care what you like. I care what scripture says, number one. And number two, how we can bless the body. So all I'm saying is that People get freaked out. They hear words like diversity, social justice. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm being invaded by critical theory. I say, just calm down, relax. There are ways to talk about these issues from an entirely biblical perspective. So before you jump the gun and assume that everyone's been, you know, they're, they're, the body snatchers have been here and have taken away all the biblical <laughs> pastors, just ask, what do you mean? Define those terms. Can I see these issues from a biblical lens and work to gently, if I'm worried that there's some unbiblical ideas floating around, can I gently guide the conversation back to the What does the Bible say about these issues? Um, so, yeah, I, that's, but again, there's so much, so much good the church can do. And I, yeah. I worry that people are either embracing critical theory or just rejecting these entire issues, which are they're both right. unbiblical yeah. approaches. Well, and something you said that I read online somewhere, and, and I can relate to this as well, you said, look at the data over anecdotes, you know? So you said that you personally didn't have friends growing up, you don't have friends now that are have these sorts of prejudiced views, um, but they're out there. Like, it's it's out there. It's happening. It's real. So, you know, and I, I agree, like, in the circles that we're in, like, people are not like that. It's pretty diverse. People really celebrate one another in every way. And, but the reality is that, you know, as you said, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment does exist. It's, it's really out there. Yeah. Racism, sexism, it's it's there. So even if you don't experience Uh, it, you know, be sensitive to the fact that other people have. 
Well, that's the irony, too, is that people that are they're all anti-critical theory, but then you say, well, do you know racism still exists? Well, I've never experienced it. My lived experience says that there is no racism anymore. Right. right. We're yeah. all operating <laughs> on the same lens. Consistently, surveys show that one in six whites are opposed to interracial marriage today, 2019, 2018. One in six. That's consistent across numerous yeah. surveys. Yeah. And it's uh, it's and when you ask just Republicans, twenty percent of Republicans think interracial marriage is immoral. Not just like oh, it's uh, it's immoral. This is like four or five really huge national surveys. All I'm saying is that even if that last one, you're like, wow, maybe that was a bad survey. I, I, I'm just saying, look, racism is out there. After my article in the Gospel Coalition, I got an email from. These literal neo-Nazis, like or white nationalists, they would call themselves, uh, talking about how blacks were inferior, and you know, so giving me hate mail because I was too, you know, sympathetic towards people of other races. (laughs) So I've gotten this hate mail. So you know, it's it's really people like they're out there, and they need they they need to repent. They also need the gospel, And, and so we need to be a sympathetic to our brothers and sisters who have faced that kind of hatred definitely and then but we need to call racist to repent and believe the gospel because they're not they're also sinners like us and so i think like you said this kind of view of oppressors and oppressed can can actually inflate our pride because we feel like well i'm socially jive you know i'm woke yeah. i'm aware of inju- i get it and I yeah I, I i get it right so i think we should as christians just say there's no, there's no, uh, you know, John Owen said the seed of every sin lives in every heart, right? Mm. If I am not a racist, if I'm not sexist, if I'm not any of those things, it is because God has rescued me and has spared me from the corruption in my heart that is there that would result in these beliefs and attitudes and hatred. So I think that, and that man, that if we approach each other with that lens, like I am the worst of sinners. Mm-hmm. How much would that change our attitude towards not just race and class and gender, but towards everybody else around us? Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, our, our human nature, our sinful, rebellious nature, it's it's not so surprising that we want to find ways to make ourselves look good, to exalt ourselves above others, um, to make ourselves a special class. And, you know, so uh, people have done that in various ways throughout time. And this is just a new way of doing that. What we're really interested in here is especially uh, understanding these things ourselves, but also helping our children develop a way of thinking about these issues. And so, you know, you said that your son loves to talk about critical theory. So what, what are some tips that you would give for talking to your children about well, helping them develop a strong biblical worldview about this and then helping them talk through problematic theories and ideologies? Yeah, I would just, like I said, it's, I don't think it takes much more than a really deep grounding in biblical theology and a Christian worldview, uh, which we all, we should all have, period. I, I think a lot of people, when they hear these ideas, they, they immediately like something's wrong. Like you were saying in college, something's wrong. I can't put my finger on what's wrong, but yeah. something's wrong here. So I think that if you do have a, a really deep Christian worldview, you'll sense something is off with what's being said. But that'll ground you, really, when you when you say, well, I don't know quite what's wrong, but I know something's wrong. That'll keep you mm-hmm. grounded. The other thing I'd say is that um, we should simply just inoculate our kids against critical theory. Um, yeah. And not meaning inoculated, meaning it's all terrible, it's all satanic and evil and ignore right. it. But just saying, tell them what it is. Expose them to it while they're in the home, while you're teaching them. Explain to them what's good about it and what's bad about it. 
And like with my son, immediately he'll say, he'll be able to tell you what's good about critical theory and also what's wrong about critical theory. That's enough for them, I think, to to exercise discernment. At least they're aware that like when they hear these terms or these ideas, like, oh, yeah, I know what this is and I know what's where it's right and where it's wrong. So that's a really, that's all you have to do. I think for most worldviews, be able to identify it, teach it to your kids, and then show them both the good and the bad of it. Well, uh, Dr. Shinvi, the, this has been fantastic. Um, but I, I just want to thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, hey, folks, thanks for hanging in there with us through this episode. Until next time, take care and God bless.